We're all going to hold our breaths as we get close to conference and see exactly what it is the Lord has in mind. Should be kind of fun. Um, okay. Now, as we get started today, um, we were we finished at the lot the end of last uh, lesson talking about uh, two letters really that that Paul had sent. One was uh, to the Galatians, and he was hurting and angry and struggling, and because of that, he got the Galatian flu. You remember, and he was depressed and having a hard time hearing the Spirit. Uh, and then he has his experiences in in Thessalonica and. And uh, as he's coming through there, he has this incredible, wonderful set of experiences that include being thrown in prison and being treated roughly, but the love coming from those people and the acceptance of the gospel was just like anything, unlike anything he had experienced to this point. So he's going to write two letters to, uh, to the Thessalonians, uh, and it, they are love letters. They really, really are, uh, of how much he loves them and appreciates them, and felt their love and their support and and the love that they had and they're just really sweet tender letters um, now but in, in I want to I want to quote uh, briefly before we get started here from the second letter uh, second Thessalonians this is after he's already in Corinth and he gets and Timothy comes to him, Timothy and Silas, and they've been up among the branches, and they came down, they find him working away in Corinth, and they're going to tell him what's going on in Corinth, or in uh, Thessalonica. And by and large, he's pretty happy with them. Philippi sounds like it's doing great. But there are some concerns that are creeping in, um, and he wants to address those. So as we get started, let me just, let me just kind of set the stage for this. Whenever the church, whether it's been in Utah or whether it was in Missouri or whether it was in Kirtland, tried to, tried to put together the law of consecration, and we're going to have all things in common, okay? Sounds like a really good idea. Why did it at times not work very well? Selfishness. Selfishness? Uh, a little bit. Okay, it's like we're going to have all things in common, yeah? Sometimes it's just not understanding how to do that since we culturally haven't been raised that way. So sometimes even good people with good intentions who aren't selfish right. have trouble figuring out how to do this. Right. So if, I, if I'm culturally set one way, like on capitalism, and now I'm going to have the law of consecration, what are we going to be concerned of and what might happen under that circumstance? Property. property rights. Who owns what? Freeloaders. You're worried about freeloaders that would maybe not be working, but they've got three hots and a cot without doing anything, basically, right? Well, one of my ancestors' journals, they were in a town in Utah, and they sent all the ones that didn't have anything to do up into the mountains to get lumber for everybody for the whole winter. So they're working to benefit the community, and one of the teenage kids, their pants break out. Oh yeah, the, the great Levi so rebellion. Send them down and say, just go to the bishop's store and get. It's a great story. Keep going. But he, the bishop's store was actually he had to buy things and sell things to restock if he didn't. If it didn't, and so the kid just goes in and grabs a pair and starts to leave, and the guy's like, "You can't just do that. There has 
and they didn't know, not everyone knew what the process was. Do you want to finish it or you want me to? That's the end. Oh, it was a great story. What happened is this is in uh, this is in Orderville. This is a different story. Different story. Okay, let me tell you about the Levi Rebellion in Orderville. We know about that. That one you know too, right? Which is everybody's got we got Levi's, we got pants, but you don't get rid you don't get to get rid of your pants until they wear out. Okay, so everybody's kind of got the same thing going. Uh, well, one of the kids, when, he, when they're shearing the sheep, starts keeping back just the wool from the tail. And he manages to collect a lot of wool from the tail. And then he, went, he was able to go up to Salt Lake, and he's able to buy himself with the wool from these bags that he, from the tail. He's able to buy himself a new pair of Levi's which he then shows up in town with, and everybody else has got their older Levi's, he's got the new ones. Now they want, how do we get the new ones? Well, you don't get the new ones until those wear out. So what these guys were doing was that they were going over near the grist mill, and they were leaning up against the, the grist mill, the grist wheel, and they're gonna wear out their pants. I need new pants. I got holes in this. Uh, you know, and it's, uh, all the boys were having holes in their pants. Um, and it was one of the things. That, now, am I telling it right? A couple of different stories. Okay. So these are the kind of stories that come out of what happens if you try and have things in common. And one of them might be a fear of those that aren't going to work. Because isn't that our fear? If we're going to put all things in common, what about those that don't want to work? Okay. His life is too complicated now. Oh, very much. Yes. Yes. But but now what we're going to see in Philippi, for instance, what happens if we're having all we're having things that are we're all having common meals together? We've all accepted Christus, Christ, and He is coming soon. So now what do we do? Are we going to work? No, we're just going to kind of study and get ready because it's going to be good. He's coming soon. Don't work. So I think it's fascinating that Paul gets this word, and we'll show it in just a couple of minutes, while he's working really hard in Corinth. <laughs> making tents and making uh, tarps and all kinds of things. And, and Silas and, and Timothy are going to come and say, they're doing great up there, but we've got some guys that aren't working. They're just waiting for the second coming to occur. So that's, that's what prompts Second Thessalonians. He's going to send that. He's going to run this off, probably um, dictate it maybe to uh, Silas or Timothy and have them do it. Now, but uh, if you look at this, this is one of those moments where the difference, and it's a, it may seem subtle, but I think it's huge. It's the subtle difference between the King James Version of this uh, letter and when we actually translate it more correctly in Greek the meaning changes quite a bit and I think it's and it's a very cool thing okay so so let me let me uh, throw this at you here okay so here here is the King James Version for we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly working not at all but are busybodies and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note, the, note that man. 
and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yeah, shun him, right? They'll be ashamed, okay? Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So what does it sound to you like is Paul is telling them to do? Throw him out lovingly. <laughs> Shun him as a brother. But embarrass him enough so that he will start working. Is kind of the that the sense you get from that? Yeah. Okay. Here's what here's what we get in the Wayment version on this. For we hear that some live among and I boy, there's a term I hear I love this a lot. For we hear that some live among you without working. Not actually working, but merely working. <laughs> okay, now, hold the bus for a second here. <laughs> They're working the system. Yeah, yeah. How many people do you know, I'm, I'm going to be working? I'm mostly working. Uh, I've applied for a bunch of jobs. I'm thinking about working. I'm going to write a blog. <laughs> I'm going to be a consultant. I'm not working, but I'm nearly working. I think it's just, I have all intents of working, but I'm not really working. It's a little bit like saying, I'm nearly pregnant. <laughs> I am mostly pregnant. <laughs> I'm just not pregnant yet. <laughs> so, so I think part of what Paul is saying, and, and Wayman says he went back and he says, the, this is exactly what that Greek word means. He's nearly working. So there are those among you who are nearly working. Um, and then he says, but if anyone does not obey our instructions through this letter, please take note of that person and do not associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Can you hear the subtle change? It may seem it's as simple as that to um, this, this, that, to that, let's see, uh, that, that. If you're going to read this, and do not associate with him so that he may be ashamed, do not consider him an enemy, but exhort him as a brother, what does that sound like to you? Can you hear the difference? Verse 14, the difference is that comma, just that one comma. Yeah. That comma out and make it one sentence. Yeah. To what? If you have somebody that's not working, what should you do? I'm going back to your last question. It sounds like the new handbook. <laughs> it is a little bit like the new handbook, isn't it? It says, we're going to work with him. Okay. In other words, don't handle this in a way that would embarrass him. Where the first one sounds like you say, embarrass him. This one says, do not associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Do, do not consider him an enemy, but exhort him as a brother. In other words, if you have somebody that's not working very much, what should you do? Encourage them. Encourage them. Take them aside. Talk to them privately. Don't do, in other words, don't embarrass them. The, the meaning is completely different, I think. D does that make sense? 
which in a loving environment that they were, it would make plenty of sense that he'd be saying to them, you guys are loving people, take them aside and talk to them. Encourage them lovingly as a brother. As opposed to shun them until they get their act together. No, that does, and that doesn't really work very well, does it? No, it really doesn't. Okay? So that is, that is kind of what's going on up there in, in uh, Thessalonica is that they are just kind of getting excited about their new religion and they're rolling and, and but, but some are misunderstanding this to the point where they just think it's about to occur any time. Remember that when the saints first got to the valleys uh, along the Wasatch Front, their assumption was when would they be going back to Missouri? Right away, and they and they, they asked, "What is it, John? I think it's John Taylor, or Wilford Woodruff." Where they ask him, uh, "What does he think about going back to Missouri?" Do you remember his response? "I'm planting apple trees," <laughs> which is, "I expect to be here when the apples mature." It's not happening anytime soon. Uh, I, I've I've told I've told the story before of my uh, pioneer. Uh, grandfather Arza Hinckley who was helped settle Rexburg um, but he had been standing at lunch hour in the in the quarry at Nauvoo as they were quarrying stone for the Nauvoo temple and Brigham Young came up and uh, and and they were talking to him about this whole thing look it looks like we're getting ready to leave and, and we're getting ready to leave Nauvoo and and Brigham Young said it's all right boys we're going to go out to the mountains. We're going to go out to the Rocky Mountains. And then one day we'll come back here to the Central Stakes. <clears throat> so we're going out there, but we're all coming back. And, and in my grandfather's journal in 1900, uh, he says, I've been waiting to go back to Missouri all my life. I guess it's not going to happen. Just this sense of saying, that, waiting for this apocalyptic thing to, to happen, right? And it's not happening. So, yeah. it hasn't happened yet. Well, I, I, I do. Ha Cindy and I have talked before that we were kind of surprised by the fact that uh, we made it through uh, 2000. I mean, we're, the millennium was supposed to. They were opening this, the last seal at the. Not, we're not. I will never see Social Security. I will. We are the last generation before Christ. Oh no, we're still here. <laughs> size does not fit all. And we are being taught in the gospel, as long as we're living the commandments and doing what the Lord wants us to do, our individualistic, individualistic tendencies are wonderful. We all have something to contribute. Right. And you spend your time worrying about whether or not someone's pants has holes in them or not. Yeah. Or whether they're wearing pants or a dress to church. I mean, you're just totally getting away from what the gospel is supposed to be. Right. And the administration of that would be so time-consuming. Yeah, she, she's saying, if you'll see, especially in this area, and you listen to the handbook, the, the handbook is, I think, just saying, let's not run people off. Let's, let's take people where they are and, and err on the side of bringing them uh, close. Uh, in all honesty, I know, for instance, one of the things that's out there, I know the number of women out there would really like when their baby is blessed to stand in a circle and hold the baby. Well, I know that the old handbook, if I remember right, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, said, no, don't do that. But the, the new handbook says, 
you know, the brethren of the priesthood are going to hold the, the baby. Now, if a mom, you know, it's time to bless the baby and a mom is holding that baby and comes up and wants to be holding it while the brethren put, I, I'm not sure that if I were a bishop, I'd run her off. I would say, okay, if this is something she wants to do, I may just, you know, based on, on the circumstance and the spirit, I'd probably say, it's not necessarily in there, but it, rather than offend her in front of a ward, I'm, not, I'm just going to roll with that. Now, if she's going to come up and want to bless the baby, that's a different discussion, right? But I just think what we're watching is the, the church is trying to say, let's look for opportunities to keep people close rather than drive them off, okay? So, all right, that's it. Um, let, let, let's hop ahead here. Um, I want to show this not because it's necessarily like a fun picture of me, <laughs> but I want you, as, as we're going to talk about, because what's going to happen here is Paul is now going to be snuck out of town in the middle of the night, and he's had these great experiences with, with these, all these people in Thessalonica, and then they're going to sneak him out, put him on a boat, he's going to sail down, he's going to go to Athens, uh, he's still worried about the people up north, so he's going to send Timothy and Silas back, and he's going to handle si uh, Athens all by himself. Now, I think it was a pretty hollow kind of thing for him. This would be this would like be like a missionary in England having some great experiences with some of the branches in England, and then he's going to go knock on doors at Oxford <laughs> and just not have the same kind of experience in Oxford that he might have had in the countryside. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, so, uh, but I want you to see the kind of the layout here because we're going to talk a little bit about um, symbolic architecture. Does that sound like a... What did you learn about Brother Hinckley's class? Well, we talked about symbolic architecture. <laughs> oh, good. That sounds good. Okay. And that is the building of buildings and the placing of buildings in a way that teaches lessons uh, along the way. So, so in this case, uh, and I'm, I'll show you from a couple of different angles. I, I'm standing on uh, the Areopolis uh, in Rome and the Mars Hill. Um, with the Acropolis behind the Temple of Nike right there in the Parthenon. It's hard to tell what's your hair and what's the clouds. <laughs> I cut my hair kind of blends into the clouds, and that's true. It's one of the downsides of having Uchtdorf hair. What can I say? Okay. So so here is here is uh, probably what Paul was looking at. When we get on top of the Acropolis, um, and you get the Parthenon here, uh, again, Temple Nike's over here. Uh, you get this temple, which was set aside for uh, Venus and actually Poseidon. Kind of cool. Um, but it was seen from miles around. What did that look like on the inside? It looked like that. Okay, you had this massive statue of Athena uh, and this is and, and you just kind of see the opulence um, by the way side note Hugh Nibley used to talk about the fact when we talk about divine architecture he'd say isn't it interesting that here, here was the ancient Greek and Roman way of doing things with the columns and everything and he says now we use the same architecture in our banks <laughs> he just says it's just, we're just switching who we worship was was uh, 
Hugh Nibley's take on that. Uh, it's kind of cool. Um, okay, so another view then of the uh, kind of what's left of the Acropolis. It's been uh, raised a few times. Uh, the Romans really beat it up about 400 BC. Uh, and, and what you see when you go to Athens uh, is that they're in this constant state of trying to finally rebuild everything that was on top of the Acropolis. But it's just it's pretty impressive while you're up there. Okay. Now, if you come down off of the Acropolis up here, it's kind of pointing a bit to the north here, and Mars Hill, the, the Areopolis is over here to the right. This down here is the, is the um, Agora. It's the marketplace. You talk about somebody who is afraid to go out in places they have agoraphobia. Okay, the agora is I'm afraid I'm afraid to go out into the marketplace, afraid to go out of open spaces, kind of thing. But th this was the agora. This was the great marketplace uh, of things. Okay, and this is what it looks like today. Uh, again, standing on top of. Uh, Mars Hill, looking down into the Agora, what's left, uh, one of the remaining temples that's down in there. Okay, pretty cool. And then if you want to climb up and stand on top of the Areopolis, you can do that. Up you go. Uh, everything that was on top of here uh, is now gone. It's just kind of a kind of a bumpy rock up on top of Mars Hill. Okay, which is kind of fun because there's some places at the foot of here where we can actually have some classes and, and when we take groups up there then we come down and have a class about what happened there. Okay, Another, this is looking from, from uh, the Acropolis, that's Mars Hill in the middle and then down to your right would be the Agora. You see that? Okay. All right. So, why is that important? Well, I find that interesting that when we get to places like this and you get, the, this is the, uh, the porch of the maidens out there. Uh, off to the side here is where uh, uh, Venus planted a olive tree for Poseidon. There's a whole bunch of fun things there. Um, but, I want you to see something here for a second in terms of when we look at divine architecture and what it is that Paul was looking at and it has some ramifications for us today okay it's interesting to me uh, and I realized I was thinking realized that I was thinking about this if you want if you're going into Athens you go up on top here's the Acropolis that's where the gods live the temples to them are there you know we're gonna uh, you're gonna make your pilgrimage and go up there and you're gonna worship and on and on uh, feast days you're gonna go and and have sacrifices and everything. That's where the gods live. The gods live up on the Acropolis. You can see it for miles around. That's where they live. Okay? Now, down here in the Agora, down in, in the marketplace, that's way down the hill. Okay? This is where the common people trade and buy things and meet each other and things like that. Now, Halfway, I find it fascinating that halfway between the, the Agora, the marketplace, and the Acropolis, where the gods live, we have 
Mars Hill, and this was called, this was the Areopolis. This was the council. Now, who meets at the council? Who meets at, at this place? Uh, there's a, a group, uh, a council called the Archons, okay? Meaning the ancient ones. Well, the ancient ones, their job was to kind of be the Supreme Court of Athens. So even though Rome was in control of all of Athens, the, the ancient ones, the archons, would meet and hold their Supreme Court things, and they would weigh religious things, and they would weigh political things, and they had a certain amount of power. They could stone you, they could hurt you, they could shun. So, so we have this discussion sometimes about in, in Acts 17 that Paul comes along and he goes up on Mars Hill and he has like this philosophical discussion with um, the, these philosophers up there. And he bests them. No, 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 no. What this is, Mars Hill, the Areopolis, was a council. It was a supreme court. This was the highest court in Athens. Make no mistake, Paul's on trial. He's in trial. This is a dangerous moment. If, if they should get things stirred up to a certain level, he would be killed. It would be hot, tough because he's a, he's a Roman citizen, but more than likely he could be harmed, he could be hurt. Um, and, and so Paul is going to have this experience of being on trial, but notice where, he's, where it's happening. He, his, his trial is, is up here on Mars Hill. And it is within view of the marketplace where he started preaching. And it's also over his shoulder, like I was just trying to demonstrate, you can see the gods behind you. Okay, now, let, let, let me stop for a second, if you, if you can see this. Okay, in the church, we've become pretty uh, enamored with councils. Why? What is it that we like about High councils and ward councils and family councils and quorum of the twelve councils and teacher training councils and council 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 bishops youth committee councils. How come we like councils so much? How come we like councils? Why do we like the council so much? Because councils allow us to explore things in a safe environment. And they're calculated to give us a correct answer way more frequently than we get one individually. Okay. Collectively, we may come up with better answers. Okay. Why else? Every one of them has the authority. Sure. Yeah, and so there's some authority that comes from the decisions that get made. Like I, I sat in a ward council last week, and we made have decisions and discussions about how, what we do. Okay. What is the power of a council? I think ideally it's so that collectively the whole group has a voice. Right. Decisions are made with the input of all the members of that group. Okay. It does. And so everybody, it's more, you're more likely to have a voice. It's a little bit more, I don't know, democratic. Or at least set up so that you're able to hear more. Okay. Now, look at the layout. Where does the... As far as Athens was concerned, and by the way, when, when, when our founding fathers set up uh, our republic and they wrote our constitution, 
And they were trying to decide, in history, we have a chance to create a country out of whole cloth. What do we want this country to look like? Guess where they looked? Guess who they drew on as, as our founding fathers? Athens. They were reading Cicero. They were reading Plato. They, were re they, wanted, they wanted the Republic of Athens. That our, our Constitution is, is so infiltrated with the Republic, the city-states of Athens that rose up and started to vote and have people. And so in the early days of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire comes in and conquers Greece, but what do they do? They copy all the Greek stuff. So that's why at first they have a, it is the Roman Republic that they, that they took from the Greeks. And so when, again, so when George Washington and Madison and Jefferson and all those guys are looking at what do we want a country to look like, they're, they're, they're reading Cicero and Plato's stuff. They wanted to have a republic where everybody had a voice. Okay? But again, notice, as, so as far as the Athenians are concerned, where does the council sit? Geographically. It sits between what? Gods and the Agora. It sits halfway between the gods and the marketplace. Okay? Why would that be helpful as a council? Who should a council be looking at? They should have one eye on the gods and one eye on the marketplace. Does that make sense? Th th think, about how that think about how a council is strategically sitting right between the gods, making sure we get their input, and the marketplace. In other words, what are we hearing as the needs of the marketplace? What we're doing in the council is it addressing the needs of the people with an eye towards what God's want, what God wants us to do. Is that kind of cool? Think about what happens if you sit in a ward council. What happens if you ha if you're sitting there, kind of what I call perched between the gods and the agora? <laughs> you know, you got one eye on here's God's plan, and the other eye on what are we re really seeing on the ground when the rubber hits the road? What are the real needs? that we're facing. And I think that in a sense is what we were talking about with the handbook changes. I think the brethren are being, and sisterin, are being very, very good about saying, let's keep an eye on God's plan, but let's also keep an eye on the needs going down here. How do we hold people close and not drive them away? Does that make sense? Um, so in a sense, Paul, when, when they're looking at Paul and they've got concerns about Paul, they're going to take him to a place perched between the gods and the agora and be able to say, let's make sure we keep an eye on both things. Both things are being served by our council here. Uh, kind of cool. Yeah. All right. Comments on any of that? I just think here's our pattern doesn't matter what council you sit in. I think if this is, if this is what you're going to have in mind, how do you make sure that both things are being uh, accounted for? Okay. All right. So let's talk about what happens on the Areopolis. Okay. So uh, we go to uh, Acts 17. 
when Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled. Um, I think troubled is a light word. <laughs> I think he was really disturbed. Think about what he'd just come from and watching people change their lives and sacrifice and love and care about one another. And then he's going to walk into this kind of this land of, of idolatry and kind of being stuck in their past. And we're great because of our past, but we don't know about things now. Um, so, his spirit was troubled because he saw the city was full of idols. Therefore, he taught the Jews and the God-fears in the synagogue. He starts with the gods or with the Jews. That's his pattern. Find the synagogue, teach in there, and especially after those God-fears, those guys that are sitting in with the Jews but haven't joined yet. And where else does he teach them? And he taught them where? In the marketplace. Every day with those who happen to be there. Okay? Now, if there's a modern equivalent to this, I have never been, but has anybody ever been to Hyde Park in London? Do they still stand on soapboxes in Hyde Park? Yes, they do. One of those great English traditions, right, of if you've got something you want to say about anything about anything, pull up the soapbox and stand on it and do your thing out in the middle of Hyde Park. Okay, and, and a lot of the early missionaries, uh, we didn't have any in the north where I was, but certainly in London. If you're a missionary, you had a ch your chance to teach in Hyde Park. You just would do that. Okay, and a lot of our prophets uh, had a chance to do that. Okay, well that's similar to what was going on in the marketplace, because it wasn't just a market. This is Athens. This, again, this is like Harvard or Oxford or something like that. It's the marketplace of products, but it also would be the marketplace of ideas. So there's discussions going on down here in the marketplace. Okay? Now, so, and he taught in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, but he was introducing this new thing that he was talking about, and it was this Christus. Christus and the resurrection, which made no sense to them at all. Okay? Now, who would that stir up? Well, and some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conferring with him and some said, what does this foolish show-off want to say? Okay, now, let's, let, we, need, we need to stop here for a second. Um, you know how with the, uh, in the Sanhedrin, uh, that the Sanhedrin was made up in Jerusalem was made up half of Sadducees and half of Pharisees. Well, the current makeup on the Areopolis at Mars Hill was made up half of Stoics and half of Epicureans. There were other philosophies, but these were the two bigs at the time. Okay, so it's important to take just a second and realize what what these two guys, what these two groups believed. Um, Epicureans, uh, interesting. God is all powerful and distant and uninvolved. He created us and got out of got out of town. Therefore, enjoy all that life has to offer. Enjoy beauty and all the fine things of life. The Epicureans would love sitting in a wine vault, eating, you know, drinking ancient wine and talking about important things. 
and looking good because that is civilization. It's what Britain brought to the world it is this Epicurean civilization thing and, and we are really children of the gods but we're just going to take advantage of the finer things of life. They just bask. In it. They just bask. We're just it's amazing just how amazing we are. <laughs> now, the Stoics, on the other hand, took almost a, the opposite road to get to the same place. God is in all things and all around us. So think about the Star Wars, the Force. That's a very, th th thank you, George Lucas, that was a very Stoic idea. The Force is in everything and it moves everything. And, and we have a, we have pieces of that when we start talking about what? The light of Christ. That would be, the Stoics would love the light of Christ idea. But the, that means this, this God is, is not necessarily sitting in one place, kind of it's higher power, and he lives in all things. So he, he's living in all of these gods and pagan stuff and everything. We'll love them too. Uh, we're just going to embrace everything because God is all over the place here. Uh, it's all kind of a higher power. And so because of that, we're not going to get caught up so much in emotion stuff. For Stoics, uh, your higher power was about being smarter and more knowledgeable than anybody else. The Stoics would be the patron saints of engineers. Okay? All right. So the, even, again, even though there, there are other groups out here, these two guys, the Epicureans and the Stoics, were really the ones that were kind of ruling Athens at this moment. And, and Paul's going to start talking to them about Christus. And they're going to go, we don't understand this. But some are going to say, this is pretty foolish show off. What does he want to say? But then some in there started to say, others said he seems to be a teacher of foreign deities. Uh-oh. That's what got Socrates killed. What got Socrates killed 400 years before was the fact that he was bringing in foreign deities' beliefs to the kids. That got him a death sentence. That's the argument he's bringing in foreign deities that gets him an appointment at the Supreme Court on Mars Hill. Because he's not just talking about somebody to worship, he's talking about Christus as king, that his kingdom has come on earth. Well, that might get us in trouble with the Romans also. Because we're going to have the Caesar cult running around in Athens. So, that's the one, that's the argument that gets him an appointment on Mars Hill. Uh, so, and then, and then you got then Luke. <laughs> Luke's going to give you this kind of this dismissive little comment. You see, fellow gentle readers in the future, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time in nothing else except telling and listening to something new. So yeah, see, so saying what he's basically saying is, I'm not sure why they did this to Paul because. They were always wanting something new because he, he knows he's on trial. This isn't a debate society. He, this is trial. They, this is weird that they would do that because they're always wanting something new. We don't get it. But they did it to him anyway. Now, 
Interestingly enough, side note, where do we find Paul's discussion of what happened in Athens? It doesn't exist. That we can find in any of Paul's letters, he never wrote about what happened on Mars Hill. The only, the only thing that we have is what Luke wrote in, the, in Acts, is the only story we have. And if, if you're going to read what happens in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, it's going to take you about two minutes to read it. He wouldn't go before the Supreme Court in Athens and speak for two minutes and then, then dismiss him. This was probably hours of grilling. And we're going to get a small little synopsis of what Paul would have told uh, Luke, he said. Okay? So, let's at least get a little bit of a taste of this. Paul stood at the Areopolis and said, Athenians, I perceive that you are very religious in all things. Okay? King James calls it superstitious. That's a bit harsh and a bit uh, kind of slamming of paganness. That's not what Paul was saying. He says, I believe that you're pretty religious people. You worship a lot. As I passed through and considered your objects of worship, I found an altar. We think this is down by the, by the, uh, the um, harbor. It wasn't up in the city. We think this particular thing was down near the harbor. Um, considered your objects of worship. I found an altar on which had been written to the unknown God. Therefore, what is unknown to you in worship, this I declare to you. I'm going to talk about what you don't know. Now, look at what he does here. Think for a second. Who, who are the Stoics? What do they, what do they believe? God. God is everywhere. Think of the force. What, what do the Epicureans believe? Yeah, God is up there. Enjoy the good stuff. Okay, so he's a removed God. Okay? Look what Paul does. God the creator of the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with hands. Who's, 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 uh, who's happy about this? Epicureans. Yes. <laughs> He's one of us. <laughs> All right. It's good. Okay. Nor is he served with human hands. Yes. As though he needed something, since he gives life and breath to all things to everyone. Wait. Well, that sounds more stoic. <laughs> okay. So, so what, what Paul is doing, and, and by the way, I think it's just amazing. It gives you some idea of Paul's education. For example, here's this guy from Tarsus, and he's just the itinerant preacher, and you're going to put him in the Supreme Court of the land, and he's, uh, what he's going to do is he's going to start, he's going to quote from the Stoics, he's going to quote from the Epicureans, he's going to quote from Greek poetry. And he's just, he just, and I think they're just kind of amazed. This is not what we thought. This is not a country bumpkin. Oh. So, basically what it is that Paul is going to do in this setting then is that he's going to push back and, be, and have them begin to say, you don't know everything. 
but I'm nearly not going to try and teach you that much. I think Paul was just trying to get out of there. Because as, as, as soon as he steps off of Mars Hill, what does he do? He gets out of town. Everywhere else he goes, he spends a long time teaching and creating branches of the church. And he, and he argues in the synagogues and everything. It's like he taught a little bit in the synagogue. He taught in the marketplace. He has experience on Mars Hill. And he goes, nope. There are, there are, there's nothing here in Athens for me. And he leaves. I'm going to cut my losses and get out of town. It could be. Very, it could very easily have been. We just said the Spirit was saying, now, there's nothing here. Which is really hard. I mean, I, I remember um, as a young missionary, sometimes there are neighborhoods you walked into and you kind of go, nope, there's nothing here. Maybe. Rather than, rather than organize an entire missionary force here and really hit this hard, I think he, there's a pretty good chance he's getting to Athens and he goes, because there's no indication he'd ever been to Athens before. I think he probably looks around and goes, yeah, this is everything that I thought it would be. And there's nothing here. Now, here's what's interesting about Athens. And then we'll kind of roll forward here. If you think about it, um, in a lot of big cities, if you go into the older part of the city, you can see the older kind of state institutions of the, of the city. Okay? Then, but you can see that it's decaying and where they used to have uh, attorney's offices, now they've got antique stores and, and, and things like that. Okay? And, and now, but what you really want to do is you want to go to the bustling suburb where all the growth and life is happening. Okay? Just about every major city has these areas. Downtown is struggling to hang on, but there's a, there's a Wahoo suburb going on with all the lights and things are going, and it's a, it's a much cooler place to be and things are happening. Athens was that place that was kind of just stuck in its old ways and there was nothing really there and we're, now we're not really producing anything other than ideas and here we are, okay? Where's the bustling suburb with all the lights and the excitement? It's 60 miles up the road in Corinth. Do you want to hang out on Hollywood Boulevard? Or do you want to go to Vegas? And in Paul's case, he went, there's nothing on Hollywood Boulevard but a bunch of fading stars. I think I will have more success in Vegas. And that's really what he did. Okay, okay so, so he, he, uh, he gets done here. They say, okay, we will hear you, we'll hear you more on this matter. He goes, peace out. <laughs> I'm not even coming back. I'll see you later. And he's gone. Yeah. So one thing that occurs to me is that, that as you go into a community, if the community is um, polarized yeah. and divisive, yeah. like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the Epicureans and the Stoics, you seem to have, Satan has a great stranglehold in those places, because he's trying to turn people against each other. You go good, into good point. a different type of community, where people may be all different, 
but they recognize their need for each other and they're looking to build unity, that's a great place to be. Great point. Yep, great point. Uh, and he could just see there was enough contention here that it just was, not, this was just not the time or the place. It really wasn't. Okay? Uh, even now when you go to Athens, it just feels tired. It just, the, the whole city just feels tired. It really does. Great stuff to see, but just tired. Okay, so he goes up, he's going to head up the road uh, 60 miles to, uh, out to uh, Corinth. And, and Corinth is, is where it's all happening. Corinth is the home of the Olympic Games. Uh, it's the home of the Corinthian columns. You know, uh, it's right here on the peninsula. Um, give you a description of it. The temple of Aphrodite was so rich that, that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, courtesans, uh, both, uh, whom both men and women had to be dedicated uh, to the goddess uh, Aphrodite. Therefore, it was also on this account that these women, that the city was crowded with people and grew very, very rich. Uh, for instance, and this is true, the sea captains freely squandered their money, and hence the proverb, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Okay, again, if we, if we take our money, if you're going to take your money to Vegas, what's going to happen? I will lose it. If you're going to take your money to Corinth, you will lose it. Uh, uh, Corinth actually, uh, like I said, uh, means uh, f uh, fornication. Okay? But you get it, so Temple of Aphrodite up here, and here's the marketplace. And I, I'm going to show you this, because this becomes really kind of important here in just a second. Okay? That gives you an idea. That is a, that's a good artist rendition of what Corinth looked like at the time of, of Paul. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. Uh huh. Yeah, that, that would be Temple of Aphrodite, and then over here you got kind of the Colosseum thing where they can, um, and then the, the Agora would be like right down in here. It's funny. Roman cities are when you when you've been in a couple of they all begin to have the same. Architect. I mean, Ephesus looks a lot, a lot like this, and Pompeii looks a lot like this. There, there was just a style that went with these covered stoas that you could walk back and forth in the hot sun, and you knew where you could find the temple, and good meat, good barbecue was to be had in these temples, you know, after feast days especially. Um, but you'd have, you'd have these covered walkways, like we talked about, we're, we're going to talk about when we get to Ephesus, it was, they had water flowing underneath the sidewalks, so they could cool the sidewalks uh, on a hot Mediterranean day. They, it, was a, it was an amazing place. Um, and like I say, the most well-preserved is Pompeii. You can walk up, up and down and see the houses and, and the wine bar. Is right, I mean, it's just, uh, it was just, it was a standard. This is the way the Romans built uh, their areas, okay? Uh, in the museum there at, uh, in Corinth, uh, there's an alt, there's a Jewish altar that probably would have been something that Paul probably would have seen because you can see the beaded uh, menorah kind of right there. Okay? Another view of the Agora. Oops. 
All right, so, and again, this is rich, and it's, and it's building, and it's crowded, and there's energy, and there's people from all over the world that have come into to Corinth, and this is a rich bounty of uh, uh, harvest for Paul. Anybody know off the top of your head how long Paul stays in Corinth? 18 months. He does a year and a half in, in Corinth. That gives you an idea of what all is happening uh, in Corinth. It was, a, it was a rich harvest for him there. Okay? Now, and he starts having some success. And one of them, kind of from biblical thing, Romans 16, he talks about the fact that I'm going to salute Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Well, in Corinth, you can find here is, here is a marker to Erastus. He's the provost. He's the treasurer. Okay? So, this is one of those little kind of biblical confirmation things. There it is. Do you have a ballpark of Paul's age at this time? The, he is, we know exactly, here's the amazing thing. We know exactly when Paul was in Corinth. Exactly. Why? Because we know Gaius, the, uh, the provost that he's brought before, and that puts him in Corinth at 50 to 52 AD. He's probably, his, his trial at the Bema is probably, is, we think it's 51 AD uh, under Gaius. Uh, so that would put Paul, if, if we're guess, guessing that Paul was born about 4 or 5 BC. So he's, he's starting, he's in his late 50s when he gets here. Okay. All right. Another view of kind of what is left there at Corinth now. You can walk, walk around. Okay. Now let me give you, let me back up and give you a little bit of history, kind of what's going on here, because it'll give you an idea. One of the reasons why he is finding a rich harvest in Corinth. This is a letter written by Claudius Caesar, 41 AD. This is a letter from Emperor Claudius to the Alexandrians in, in Egypt. And this is from uh, Tiberius Claudius Caesar, uh, Emperor Pontifex Maximus, holder of the Tribunican power, consul embassy to the city of Athenians, uh, Alexandrians, I send my regard. Now, to your question as to who is responsible for the conflict with the Jews. He's kicking Jews out of Rome and other places. As to who's responsible for the conflict with the Jews. Or should I say our war with them? I have decided not to make a detailed investigation into it, but if any party wishes to renew this violence, they shall see my wrath unfold. Uh, okay, now, uh, down here. I say to you once again that on one hand the Alexandrians have shown that they have acted with kindness and respect towards the Jews, have lived among you for many years, you have allowed them to worship their God freely and to observe customs and traditions, just as our God, Augustus Caesar, had done previously. But after hearing the arguments from both parties, I've decided to allow the customs to continue. I will let the Jews keep worshiping. Yet I've clearly made it known to the Jews that they are not to ask for additional freedoms to accept those they already enjoy. Don't push it. They are, now, now here's, here's the part that I found interesting on this. They are not also to refrain from sending out separate ambassadors since you and they are both residents of the same city. What is it that he's worried about? 
Proslighting. Yeah, it is. He's going after the proselyting. Because it's, it's not just proselyting from Paul and his gang. Remember, every time Paul lands in a city, who comes right behind him? The Jewish proselytes, the rigorous, who are trying to reclaim all of these God-fearers back to their, to their synagogues. So the, they're stirring up. I keep hearing that there's stuff going on up there in Thessalonica and up there in Philippi where they're having riots and stuff. And, and the Jews are sending people from Jerusalem and then other Jews are sending other Jews down there and they're beating people up and they're putting them in prison so much that there are earthquakes. <laughs> I'm going to put an end to all this foolish nonsense. Okay? And by the way, this is, and this is 41. This is a decade before. So you can see that it's already being stirred up. Okay. All right. So, so as a result of that, then people are going to, Jews, good solid believing Jews are going to leave Rome and they're going to go to places like the new suburbs in, in uh, Corinth and set up business. We're about to meet uh, one of them. Two of them. Acts 18. And after all of these things in Athens, Paul departed from Athens and came down to Corinth. And he met a Jew named Aquila of Pontus by birth and recently came from Italy, from Rome, with Priscilla, his wife, <coughs> because Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. So we're going to get some of these displaced Jews that are going to land in Corinth. And, and uh, let me just give you a sense of the, the thing that, that's kind of fun, is we, especially as we get into the last part of Acts and the letters, is you start to watch Paul's church kick in. And you watch him start to baptize people and convert people, and they begin to baptize and convert people. And you start seeing a foundation of, a, of an ancient church start to form. And it's not just Paul and a couple of missionaries going around forming little tiny things. There's a church happening and growth is happening. And, and one of those people that's really going to be fired up is going to be uh, Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, as she's going to be sometimes known. So let me give you a quick idea on these guys. Oh. So what Paul's going to, Paul came to them because they were of the same occupation, meaning tent makers, uh, and he remained with them and worked. And they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, attempting to persuade both the Jews and the Greeks. So if you... Okay. This, this is the shops. This is, this is the marketplace uh, with the temple up on top. Okay. So that means that uh, Aquila and Prisca and Paul would have set up little uh, tent-making business, making tarps and all kinds of things, somewhere in this area here. <coughs> and think about what he's able to do. On the Sabbath, Paul would be preaching to, in the synagogues and teaching them, what is he doing during the week? Making tents. And he's talking to people. In, they're walking back and forth in the market, right? And what is he doing is he's selling them tents. What a great way to get out and be talking to people about the gospel. We're just sowing away 
by the way, have you heard about Christus? Really? And, and resurrect. Who is he? He's hung, hung by a tree, hung on a tree, but he's brought a new kid. Really? You know, and they would just talk. And, and so he just kind of this, he's out among the people, and he would just look for those opportunities along with uh, uh, his friends, and they just start talking about the gospel. I think it's just, you get this, you get this kind of this awesome little uh, connection that starts to happen, and it gets to be a thing. Okay, so actually, so if we actually track forward, I'm going to jump ahead for just a little bit here. First Corinthians, and, and we're going to talk next couple of weeks probably about First and Second Corinthians, uh, because there's so much beautiful information here. About what was going on there and then uh, the gospel that they were teaching uh, but 1 Corinthians 16 the churches in Asia greet you warmly Aquila and Prisca greet you warmly in the Lord and with the church that meets in their home wow we, we know that when Paul when Paul leaves Corinth he will take Aquila and Prisca with him and I think and, and from what I can put together they then land in Ephesus and they set up a, a church in Ephesus. So as he's writing, he's saying back to the Corinthians, hey, Aquila and Prisca are with me. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, present sister Aquila. Yeah, those guys are great. Love them. Hope they're doing okay. Yeah, they've they got a church that meets in the home. Wow, that's cool. Uh, I remember them. He baptized my son. You know, those kind of things. Okay. Romans 16, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. <laughs> we don't have that story. <laughs> it's got to be a great story where they risked their necks. Uh, to whom I give thanks, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles. They all love President and Sister Aquila and Prisca. Uh, there is a, there's a tr church tradition that uh, that uh, Aquila was one of the 70 uh, and in fact in the Greek Orthodox Church they have a feast to Aquila and Priscilla okay you, every every year you can have a feast and, and celebrate them okay finally Acts 18 now just give you an idea how things are going here a Jew named Apollos born in Alexandria and Apollos becomes a pretty powerful missionary in and of himself. We don't have any of his writings, but we see his actions going on. Okay? A Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, capable in the scriptures, went down to Ephesus. And Priscilla and, and Aquila heard him. So they took him aside and explained to, more, to him more accurately the way of God. Okay? So they're, you see them kind of taking care of each other. Kind of cool? All right. Let's see. Another shot of the uh, of the uh, marketplace, and then the holy mountain behind it. Another shot. Okay. So, in our time remaining, I want I want you to see kind of every time that this is going on, the the work of the Lord never moves forward without some kind of a pushback. And here comes the pushback. Um, 
when, when uh, Gallio uh, was the proconsul of Achaea, and again, we know it was 50, and we have great records on this one, 50 to 52, so probably summer of 51. Uh, he's proconsul of Achaea, that, that peninsula that sits out there. The Jews attacked Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Uh, this is the Bema. little sign there that says the, it's the Bema. It was, it was the court in, in Corinth. And brought him before Gallio, who would have sat in judgment on this spot. So there's a couple of places when you, if you ever go to these places where you know Paul actually was, uh, Mars Hill is one and the Bema in Corinth is another. That we know for sure where he stood. Okay, this is one of them. Okay. Uh, the Jews attacking Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Which law are they talking about? The law of Moses. Okay? He's preaching contrary to the law. But Paul was about to open his mouth when Gallio said to the Jews, If this were a matter of of, of a crime or wicked villainy, O Jews, I would have been justified in accepting your complaint. But since it is a debate about a word and names and your law, look into it yourselves. I do not desire to be a judge of these things. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. This is really kind of beneath me. Remember, he's here at the Bema, but he also rules over Athens as well. He, he's the governor over this whole area here. He's a big guy. Okay? And he just is not interested in Jewish squabbles. Okay? So he drove them away from the judgment seat. Now, if you're the Jews and you get driven away, what do you do? You're not real happy. So here's what they did. They all see Sothenes. He's the head of the, the ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the judgment seat. Oh, that's not good. So my guess is that who would have been leading the delegation in front of Gallio at the Bema? Sosthenes. Probably Sothenes. Okay. And, and, and Sothenes already has a problem because he's been letting Paul preach in the synagogue. So Sothenes is going to bring this gang up there and it doesn't go well and and so it's like it's like a bunch of defendants going to court they lose in court and they beat up their attorney <laughs> which is which is what they did so they beat up Sothenes okay the ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the judgment seat right there is where Sothenes got beat up um, but Gallio was not concerned about these things couldn't kill us okay now, I find it fascinating if we go to 1 Corinthians, which again, Paul is going to write from, from uh, Ephesus, writing back to the Corinthians. When he writes back to the Corinthians, then he's also going to tell them about Priscilla and Aquila doing well. And, okay, and, they, and they remind, his, the 1 Corinthians starts with this. Paul, being an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God, and who? Sothenes, our brother to the church of God which is in Corinth. What a great story this is. Do we have it? Oh, heck no. 
But here we have Sothenes, the leader of the synagogue, who's going to take Paul along with his brethren to the Bema. They lose. He gets beat up. And then, and then apparently shortly after that does what? Joins the church. And he joins the church enough that he also will probably travel with uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla and probably Sothenes. Off they go on, on their mission adventures and probably land then in Ephesus. Okay? Because he's, Sothenes is actually sending word back. Okay? All right. Questions on any of this? I just dumped a lot of history on you. Um, I promise, again, in the next, next two classes as we're going to go through 1st uh, uh, and 2nd Corinthians, uh, you're going to find kind of the nuts and bolts about what was going on in Corinth and the struggles that came as they tried to, start, tried to start a church from the ground up. But I need you to see the, the setting in which all of this occurs. Okay? All right. And after this, Paul remained for many days in Corinth, 18 months, and took his leave of the brothers and sailed to Syria with Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So off they go, having getting ready to uh, move forward. Okay? All right. Oh, another, another shot of, if you look closely, you can see the word Bema. Right there. B-E-M-A. Probably pronounced Bama or something like that. Okay. All right. We might finish just a little bit early today. Um, questions or comments on all that? Like I said, I backed the truck up and dumped it all on you. A lot of information. Yeah. I am amazed at Paul. How he stayed with the gospel. And yeah. Whole time he was getting, you know, kicked out of places, he was put in prison. It was all these things happened, and he stayed true and faithful. I mean, yeah, it's one of those one of those uh, when um, historians and theologians alike try and study Paul. You try and figure out what really drove this man, because when he was younger, obviously you had zealous Paul who was persecuting the Christians and trying to get him thrown in jail, and he was willing to travel to Syria, and he'd already traveled from Tarsus to study in Jerusalem, and so he was just this little dynamo of energy. But like we were just talking about, he's now in his he's in the mid-50s, and he hasn't yet begun to fight, man. He's still got about another 10 years of... We're only halfway through his second journey. There's a third journey. There's the journey to Rome and the shipwreck, and some evidence that he kept going to to uh, Spain before he comes back to Paul back back to Rome and is beheaded. This is what happened like uh, now, Joseph Smith. Yeah. He was suffering a lot, and he, uh, he never denied what he suffered. Yeah, he just keeps on going, doesn't he? The Savior talked to him, why why you persecute me? Yeah. So it wasn't a lie, so, so he has to be, you know, stay uh, strong and defend the faith. Yeah, Paul just had this unusual constitution to, the, to be able to... very well prepared. 
Yeah, he'd be able to have some money and be able to travel and stuff. But but he but again, we know that he was beaten with the rod. He says five times. Yeah. Well, that's a beating in a synagogue with that uh, that staff, and, and that's a pretty brutal kind of. And he's stoned. And in one case, they're going to pull him into town, and we'll see it in the next trip. They're going to pull him into town after he's been stoned and beaten up, and he scared the heck out of him with the way he looked. You know, and did he come away with some kind of closed head injury? I think there's a real possibility of that. But he, but he just kept driving on and on and on. Uh, now, the one thing I will say is that we do get these glimpses from time to time that he has ongoing visions with the Savior. It wasn't a one-off one kind of thing. He, it happened several times. Is that enough to kind of inspire him and move him forward? I think so. But I think of all of us, when we look at it from our comfortable little perch today, we go, would I be that driven in the face of that kind of persecution to keep on going, to get thrown out of one city and then immediately start preaching somewhere else? I was just going to say that. Also, in our comfortable spaces, we come to church and get our feelings hurt. Going yes, yes. I don't think he had very many safe spaces. <laughs> maybe, maybe inside, that's why I think he cherished so much those moments in uh, Philippi or Berea or something like that, having a chance to sit down with Phoebe or sit down with somebody and just feel safe and protected for the night. So I think that's why he loved people like Priscilla and um, uh, Aquila, that those times were really precious to him, that brothership and fellowship meant a lot in all of that. So, yeah. You talked about he may have had visions, more visions. Mm -hmm. Was that because he was the Lord wanted to encourage him, or could it be because he was so righteous and the Lord knew he could trust him to keep him going? I mean, he considered the first vision he had. Yeah. You know, the Lord probably knew in his heart that this is someone who would do. Yeah, she's saying, how come the ongoing visions and and uh, what was maybe the purpose behind that? And I kind of think there's a there are twofold purpose. One, I think the Lord from time to time, uh, like in, um, he's going he's gonna to be told in Corinth that the Lord had many people for him here. There's, there's, I have people here. Or like the vision uh, when he's sitting on the coast in the middle of his Galatian flu uh, and, the, and you know, the man says, come to Macedonia, uh, we need you here kind of thing. But then even in prison, he's, he's visited a couple of times. And I think it was a partial kind of thing. One, I think the Lord needed to comfort him and give him strength. But sometimes it was to get directions. Go here next. You now need to go here. Yeah. Um, during the progress of you know, establishing the gospel in Asia, who had the keys and who directed the work? And what was the progress of who was in the yeah. See, that, that is really a good question. She, she said, so, so during this time when Paul is running around as an apostle, um, who had the keys to the work and, and all of that? And here's our, here's our problem with that. It's our presentism. We want the church back then to be organized like it is now. And to a certain extent, it might have had some of that, but what is more likely, because he, again, at certain points he's at war with some of the, the saints in Jerusalem, 
Because we'd want to say that the first presidency, see, we like having a, a first presidency and a quorum of 12, and they direct everything, and it goes through, and then we have a prophet, Peter, who's going to write first presidency statements and, and publish it in the ensign. That's what we would really like to have happen. That isn't even close to what's happening here, especially as they're starting to be killed off. Um, and, and that it's, it's more contentious than that. And, and so that might be another reason why it is that the Lord is giving a little more personal interviews to Paul because he's a bit more on an island, literally, sometimes out there without the ability to get directions from Jerusalem and from James. James seems to be kind of the local bishop in Jerusalem, and there's no information other than that letter that they send out that Paul ever took directions from James. And he's battling with Peter. So it just does not look the same as, we, as it would like it to be. Yeah? It's closer. And Alma's off by himself and, you know, Lena Nephi and the Lord kind of interacts directly with him and meets with yeah. them and gives right. essay instructions rather than just the burning in the bosom or the confusion. Mm -hmm. But when they get back together, Alma defers to Mosiah because Mosiah is the seer. Yeah. And then Mosiah says, well, you're going to be in charge of the church. Right. Like the Lord told you to be, so go do it and do it here. And it would be, again, it would be really comforting if we found out that when Alma set it up, he set it up with a, with a quorum of 12 apostles, and then there were a quorum of 70, you know, and, and we would like it to look like now, but it's, sometimes it's a little bit more, how are we doing on, on the moment? Yeah. Well, and, and I, think, I think that's a really good point. And, and think about this as we roll into uh, General Conference. We have a structure, an administrative structure in the church that fits the world situation and the churches that exist at the moment. And as the church has needed to add more quorums and change the structure, we've done that. And so the structure back then looked much different than it is now, obviously. Uh, to meet the needs of the time. Well, I was just wondering, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, in one of our classes that Paul's writings were ahead of the gospel. So oh yeah, yeah. Was there, is there any uh, connection between his writings? Did he, did he spur the, the writers of the gospels to write because of what he was doing, or, or did it have any connection at all? Boy, that's a really good question. He wants to know. See, again, First Thessalonians is coming out about 50 A.D., and it's going to come out in a letter, and it's going to be a letter that's going to be copied and recopied, and they're going to start passing that letter around, but it's not going to be widely known outside of the Thessalonian region. Uh, at the same time, the book of Mark is being performed as a play, probably in, in Jerusalem mainly, um, and then it won't actually be written down until the 60s, but it's written down. We don't know how widely it was disseminated after it was written. And then again, Matthew about 10 years after that. 
So, so there's not a lot of information out there. So a, a lot of what seems to have happened with the Gospels, as a side note, is that they needed to be written and codified and got into one place uh, because it was just as Jerusalem was going to fall in 64, 68 AD and they were going to lose the footings of the church. So it has to be written down. I think is more what drove it. Yeah. Going back to what we started with, you know, accepting people and yeah. We had an inter- I was thinking we had an interesting <coughs> experience in our ward here. I guess about remember Sister Alves, two months ago, just before Christmas, this fellow came and just walked into the well. He attended church with us. He was unshaven. It looked like he had like a half a week's or a week's growth of beard and just had on a no shirt and tie, no suit, just a, kind of in Levi's and a plaid shirt, attended sacrament and everything, was greeted and he came in and joined us in our <coughs> gospel doctrine class. And then they they asked him to introduce himself and so on and so and so and he's an employee of the church and he's sent out and he, he says, I just attend and, and he says, I report back to the brother and how well I'm accepted. Hmm. And I thought, man, I said, really? But he was very knowledgeable, and he participated in the lesson and everything. Then I kind to him afterwards, he says, it's too late. Now, you know, <laughs> really did, did you guys hear that in the back? Oh, my gosh. I had, I had no idea. That's like a secret shopper. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The, 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 they, had, they had a very unkept guy show up in church uh, and go to sacrament meeting, go to gospel doctrine and everything. Uh, just really dressed down and, and three-day beard and all that kind of thing. And then finally reveal that he works for the church uh, and he kind of attends, he just drops in on wards just to see how well he's received. He, he sure wasn't like one of the three Nephites. <laughs> wow, be careful because some have entertained angels unaware. Uh, yeah, could have been. <laughs> she, she said maybe he's homeless and he just came up with a great story on the spur of the moment. <laughs> he was looking for a good meal. He was looking for a good meal. And so, did you, do you guys invite him to dinner? No. Okay, all right. <laughs> That's great. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I would do it next time. Okay, well, brothers and sisters, I, again, uh, there is, to me, there is, uh, it's fun to watch. Uh, we have in our records, uh, we're, we're acquainted with Palmyra and Kirtland and Nauvoo and Independence and all these places, Adam on Diamond, and we watch a church starting to grow. What's fun is we start moving ahead now. You watch Paul's little snowball start to grow as it's rolling downhill. And it's picking up steam and there are people like, uh, these, these people like Sothenes that begin to attach themselves and they have some knowledge and understanding and they laid the foundation for this wonderful little Christian church that hung on as best as it could until uh, Constantine kind of codified it and moved in a bit of a different direction but it kept a, kept the spark alive and I'm grateful that we're being able to have the time and energy to to study these guys because they, they certainly are heroes and, and at some point wouldn't it be nice to have like a fireside with Priscilla and Aquila <laughs> some Sunday night and really tell them, boy, let me tell you what Paul was like when we first met him, man. It was, it was amazing. And he was really good at tarps. <laughs> so, um, 
So in the, in the next uh, week or so, if you want to start reading in 1 Corinthians, uh, that would be a good start. And I think as, as you're, especially if you're able to read it in the Wayman, Wayman version, I think it'll be, uh, there's some really great stuff in it. That's where we're going to start. So anyway, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Could I get a uh, volunteer for a closing prayer? Steph, you want to? I know I, I ask and then I point, right? <laughs> And our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this opportunity that we have to be here with him and so grateful for his understanding and his knowledge of the history and of his love for Paul and for the scripture.